Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys, we're doing a special edition of the show this week because, as everybody knows, we're in the middle of this outbreak and we want to lean in and give you guys some tools to to weather this storm. And uh, we've got two amazing experts with us. Before I dive in, I want to say one thing, which is if you are a healthcare worker, uh, we at the 10% Happier Company understand that this is a massively stressful time. So we uh, are offering free access for six months to anybody who's um, responding to the to the pandemic. You can hit us up uh, at care at 10%.com for access. Uh, again, that's care at 10%.com. I'll put a I'll put that um, email address in the show notes. And by the way, feel free to share that with any healthcare workers you know who might benefit from this. And thank you for your work. Really appreciate that. All right, let's dive in. As mentioned, we've got two amazing experts. Um, let me give you their their bios. Uh, the first is Dr. Luana Marquez. Am I saying that correctly, Luana Marquez? Yes, you are. Okay, she's a clinical psychologist, an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy. She told me, by the way, that this bio is too long, but I'm reading it anyway <laughs> because it's very impressive. Uh, an expert in CBT for a wide range of psychiatric disorders, the senior clinical psychologist at the Mass General Hospital Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress Disorders Program, as well as an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical Medical School, and she wrote a book called Almost Anxious. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, Dan. My pleasure. Uh, our next guest has been on the show many times. Uh, he's a good friend. Jay Michelson is a teacher and editor at 10% Happier, a columnist for The Daily Beast. He's written six books on contemplative practice, including his most recent one, which is called Enlightenment by Trial and Error. Uh, he was a professional LGBT activist uh, in another life. He holds a Ph.D. in religion from Hebrew University, a J.D. from Yale Law School, and also, fun fact, he's a rabbi. Uh, Jay, good to see you, bud. Good to be back. Uh, all right. So let me start with you, uh, Dr. Marquez. Um, or can I be informal and call you Alana? I was Luana. just going to okay. say, please call me Alana. Right. Cool. Um, so just off the top of your head, mm-hmm. given that so many people – are so anxious right now. I'll I'll put myself in that bucket. I'm pretty worried about this. What are your first blush thoughts about how we can deal with this in a healthy manner? So then I think the first thing we all need to remember is that anxiety is appropriate right now. Right? There's a sense of like, well, should we be anxious? It's a real threat, right? And so I think we can really work a lot on our thinking. We can work on what we are saying to ourselves to try to cool ourselves down. I know that Jay does lots of meditation, so practicing meditation as you do as well. Anything that could allow you to sort of calm your brain down, it's something that we should be doing right now. Okay, so two things I want to follow up on there. One is that anxiety makes sense is kind of adaptive i would imagine right now given the nature of the threat but i would imagine there's too much of a good thing Uh, you i was reading some notes on your work uh provided to me by some some of the folks on the 10 percent team and there's a phrase i'd never heard before i'm looking for it on my notes right here something called the uh yerkes dodson curve what is that so the idea that Um, anxiety has a inverse relationship of performance. Think about this this way. When you wake up in the morning and grab your cup of coffee, you're sort of waking up and getting more aroused, right? So up to a point, the more anxious you get, the more performance you have. Think about being on the zone. People talk about this all the time, right? That 
there's a point, a tilting point, though, that too much anxiety affects anything that we're doing. So we can't think critically. We get stuck. We start to get more anxious. That's why we're almost anxious. This idea that there's a tipping point on anxiety and performance, and that curve shows us exactly what that looks like. So just to state that, you you, you need some anxiety to, to get you to the plate, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to use a baseball analogy, and I know nothing about sports, and you're from Brazil where they, I don't think they even play baseball, but nope. um, to get you to the plate. But if you're, if you're gripping the bat so tightly and freaking out, you can't effectively swing. That's correct. At that point, we are all in fight or flight. Your limbic system kinks in, and it's pure biology, and we don't actually have the ability to think critically at that point or actually even behave in a way that makes sense. So how do we apply that to right now? Because, as you said, there's some amount of anxiety that makes sense here, but I suspect there are some of us who at times are on the wrong side of the curve. So I think the first question is, are we getting there? Right, And I think everybody can think about their own anxiety thermometer and thinking about, okay, what are the indicators for me that I know when I'm getting too anxious? The classic things are you're a little more edgy, right? You have trouble sleeping. You're stop eating or eating too much, right? So first is finding if you're actually there. If you are getting to that place that you really get into too much anxiety, then I think we have to go to skills. We have to figure out how to bring your limbic system down. And so in cognitive behavior therapy, we talk a lot about our thoughts, our behavior, and our feelings. So, for example, if we're going to look at the data in the news and if you're going to find any um, reliable source, make sure that you are weighting the information so that your thinking is not too catastrophic, right? So being able to right gauge what the data is coming in so that you're not walking around saying, I'm certainly going to get this and I'm going to die. Right, so bringing down that anxiety related to your thoughts often comes down our physio- physiology. But that sounds easier said than done uh, because I can – what can I do if I notice I'm in a spiral of mm-hmm. catastrophic thinking? Mm-hmm. What's, what's the move? So I would go – if you're really stuck and you're spiraling, right, um, think about control out the leap for the brain. And so things like doing something behaviorally, going for a jog, going for a walk – calling somebody that you know you trust. If you really, really stress, a quick technique from um, dialectical behavior therapy, grab two ice cubes and hold them. It actually cools down your brain and it calms it down a little bit. Huh. Uh, okay, so you, you keep doing this. You say things and then there are about 75 <laughs> follow-ups I want to ask. Uh, when you talk about uh, the phone call, mm-hmm. uh, social connection seems both massively important in a time of anxiety and also very tricky given the uh, mandate for social distancing right now. How would we manage that? So I think that's where, you know, FaceTime and any kind of connection that's virtual helps. Because the reality is you still feel a bit connected, right? I know this because my family is in Brazil, right? We're all on FaceTime talking. So if you're feeling isolated, definitely put your risk for more anxiety and for depression. So finding ways to connect that's virtual is probably a protective factor right now. Um uh, in, t- in terms of the other – I just want to make sure I put a fine point on this. The uh, other things that we can do to press control, alt, delete, uh, ice cubes would be on the extreme end of it. I, th- I imagine yes. that would be the extreme end of it. But exercise you mentioned as another thing, although that too is tricky because gyms are, I would imagine, massive vectors for disease right now because there's sweat all over the place. But you would recommend go to the gym but do it carefully or run outside. 
I recommend you run outside. I mean, or be careful at the gym, but any kind of exercise. I mean, a brisk walk is something that any of us can do, especially in a cool day, it calms you down a lot. Um, going up down the stairs, right? Be creative. Do jumping jacks at home. But I definitely think that an exercise brings down anxiety and it does it fast, right? We all know this. And it also helps with our immune system. And we all know that our immune system needs to be strong for us to fight this virus. What about you? T- you mentioned news titration, sort of. You, uh, I don't want to put myself out of a job or Jay, um, but th- th- so you you want us to? You say it's okay to. S- I would imagine it's important to stay informed and engage. At this, by the same token, though, you don't want us to get s- pulled down uh, into a rabbit hole of news mm-hmm. to the point where we're making ourselves miserable and in- ineffective. Exactly. I think it's a right dosage for you, right? Being able to stay connected, get good information like the information in your show, but also be able to walk away a little bit. How do we, is there a way that we can know when we're going too far? I think your biology can tell you. Sometimes you're watching the news, your heart's pounding, you feel a little anxious, that's time to walk away. Sometimes you're just feeling like you're paralyzed and you're sort of so addicted to it, that's time to walk away. Uh, Do you think most people have that kind of self-awareness? I think people have some understanding of it. Um, if, if you really feel like they don't, then I think you'd put a limit on it, 20 minutes, an hour, right? Or maybe half an hour and take some breaks, but making sure there's a dosage effect here. Um, and sleep. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, it's another kind of double bind because mm-hmm. sleep is super important. We've talked about that a lot on this show. And yet when you're stressed or anxious – uh, it's hard. I was up until three thirty last night, um, and it, so and I feel diminished as a consequence. And yet, and I knew at two thirty that I was going to feel diminished as a consequence, and that I think impaired my ability to sleep. So, mm-hmm. what do we do in that rabbit hole? It makes both of us right. I think all of us are worrying a little bit. So, I think a couple of things: good sleep hygiene, turning off your phones, turning off the news at a reasonable time. Decreasing caffeine, chocolate, anything that activates you. And if you can't sleep, get out of bed. Because sitting there and worrying guarantees you won't sleep. Right, right. And I know that, and that's exactly what I did last night. Sat sure. there and worried. And I actually am uh, one of the co-founder of a meditation app that has sleep meditations on it, which my wife recommended I do, and I didn't <laughs> do it. <laughs> Those sleep meditations. I could have helped you out at 245. Yeah, well... Um, you know, I never said I wasn't a hypocrite. Um, <laughs> so, Jay, you've listened to this discussion thus far. Any any thoughts on, on the foregoing? I, I mean, I love everything I've heard. I think partly it's that awareness of when you're not aware, mm-hmm. um, awareness of, oh, I'm lost right now. And obviously, you know, in the meditation world, the mindfulness world, that's kind of one of the core things that we teach, metacognition, aware of what's happening in your mind. Uh, oh, I'm really stressed right now. I'm really happy right now. I'm really hungry right now. I'm really tired right now. That metacognition is just aware of what's happening in the mind. And that's, that's developed in formal meditation and in mindfulness, but it can also just be developed by doing it a lot, uh, by just kind of doing that gut check. You know, one of the things, not in this case of anxiety, but uh, to regulate, let's say, our screen time, you know, the Pomodoro just reminds you, that little software app that just every 15 minutes, like, hey, it's been 15 minutes. And that's all, just having that little reminder. Uh, so likewise here, you know, it, you might want to amp that up a little bit more, uh, finding some way to just remind yourself 
that oh it's I've been uh, am I am I really learning more in the second hour of my news consumption of terrifying articles uh, about this pandemic and you know it is a matter of finding the balance because I just sort of wanted to throw this in while I think most listeners are probably informed and struggling with anxiety there are also a lot of non-listeners who are struggling with denial uh, and that's a sort of very tempting refuge because this is terrifying and it's hurting everyone either financially or emotionally or hopefully not physically but in terms of health and in terms of people who we love and so denial is a really comfortable place to hang out and that's at the highest levels of our government right now and so it's sort of a balance right we want to not be uh, binging on terrifying articles until 3.30 in the morning but we do want to be aware of the severity of this issue and our moral responsibility to those who are less uh, uh, who are less resilient and who are more vulnerable. Uh, I may personally not have that bad of a run of this particular virus, uh, but my mother-in-law sure might. And knowing that and taking that very seriously, uh, as much as anxiety is, is, is something that I'm sure a lot of people are struggling with, denial is also. Well, I was, I was thinking about that. I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, but they seem like flip sides of a noxious coin, panic and denial. Mm-hmm. Do I have that right? I think so in many ways, and I think you're right on, Jay. This idea that one way you avoid your emotions is by denial, right? You, instead of feeling the anxiety, you're just not looking at it. And that gets people equally as stuck, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. because they go for things like drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's some, Yeah, I mean, it's, it gets harder to deny reality. You have to work harder mm-hmm. and harder to do it, mm-hmm. uh, and that does become very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I think – but we're really seeing some of the effects of that and some of the uh, some of the effects in, again, whether it's government policy or, or otherwise, that there's a tendency to really try to run away from difficult feelings. So, again, sort of putting my meditation hat on, that's another thing that we teach over and over and over again mm-hmm. uh, is to just see clearly what's happening mm-hmm. and just can I be with it? Can I just be with whatever is actually happening? So, yeah, seeing that there's anxiety present. You know, a lot of things that one thing that a lot of people do is they judge themselves for having these negative feelings or feelings that they don't want to have. So I feel anxious. Oh, I'm a meditation teacher. I shouldn't feel anxious. What the hell is wrong with me? I had those thoughts last night, right? And I was coming in. I went into the studio this morning to record guided meditations for working with anxiety. And last night I was filled with anxiety. Mm-hmm. So there's that extra layer of suffering, of self-judgment, of self-castigation mm-hmm. that that is part of – that's the part that maybe we could do something about. Uh, but recognizing that anxiety is here, fear is here, it's justified, it's not all in your head. Mm-hmm. There are parts that are in your head, but it's not all in your head. This is a real thing. So then how can I show up and be more, uh, be more resilient for my family, for my loved ones, for my community? Because it's not just about me wanting to feel calm, to feel good. Mm-hmm. It's me wanting to be effective. Uh, and to make smart decisions that are driven by science and by what the experts are telling us uh, and not by my desire to either run away from reality or just obsess into it. Uh, You did it to me, too. You know, I have a million things I want to follow up with you on. Um, On the issue of uh, the sort of I want to get into the basic blocking and tackling of how meditation can help. But let me just stay with denial for a second, because I you can you can point to people uh, in the news, uh, who have, or are accused of denial, but for me, more interesting is to watch it play out in my own mind. I work in the news. I've been reporting on this virus for weeks, and on some level, not really taking it seriously enough. And I don't think it, frankly, was until Monday or so that I started to get really properly worried. Um, 
And and is there some is there some adaptive uh, component to the denial? Do you think, or is it all bad? I don't. I don't think it's all bad. I mean, what you're talking about is the closer it gets, the more anxiety we get, and then we start to worry more, right? So. I think we're right-sizing it, and not until we get really close, we get to that fear. What you're talking about in my mind is not just denial. It's sort of you're going through the motions, and maybe we can talk about a denial, but you're sort of in some way doing what you're doing, and it hadn't really come close enough for you to feel that fear yet. And then when it gets there, then it hits. And, I mean, the truth is we should be more altruistic and we should be compassionate toward all, all people everywhere. But that's not really how we're evolutionarily wired. And when this was a disease that was mostly halfway around the world, uh, it wasn't affecting our everyday life. And so, again, we should have been perhaps more concerned both from a scientific point of view and maybe from an ethical point of view. Uh, but it's, we're human beings. Uh, and now, you know, now it is here. It's not halfway around the world. It's probably on this block uh, and maybe even closer. And being aware of those feelings that come, that come up uh, is a way to neither fall into denial nor uh, obsession mm-hmm. and anxiety. But it's so interesting to watch as we're recording this on a Thursday. It's going to post on a Friday. But last night, Wednesday night, as the president was speaking, I, I started to just have this feeling uh, – is, is there's some mysticism in this because I, – I, but I, I felt almost as if I was kind of a little bit plugged into the national mood and I'm watching the president all of a sudden is talking in a completely different tone – Tom Hanks announce, announces that he's got um, uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus, and the NBA suspends the season. And I thought, okay, here we are. Now we're all reckoning with this. But part of me, and I feel even more so today, but part of me is wondering, like, why does it take Tom Hanks for most Americans or so for many Americans to really wake up to this? But we've seen this in past epidemics. We saw this in AIDS. It took whether it took Rock Hudson or Ryan White or other of the sort of Magic post, Johnson, you know, the Magic Johnson mm-hmm. later, right? So the people who it took for people to really personalize it, celebrities are in our lives, yeah. uh, and that is again, it's just part of a, part of being human. You know, we personalize things uh, that even aren't personal. You know, whether it's you know weather patterns and storms, we name them too. You know, and so there are faces uh, to this uh, to this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to me, where denial is, is now a problem, it's t- in two places. First, where there are voices with a lot of power and large media platforms that are just not covering the reality of, of this for political reasons. Uh, and that's true for a major cable news network, and it's true for a lot of individual commentators, and it's deeply, putting my rabbi hat on instead of my meditation hat on, deeply immoral. Uh, because it's really dangerous. It's going to kill people uh, if folks don't take the kinds of social distancing steps that will flatten the curve of this of this pandemic. We will we can't avoid it, but we can slow it down. Just for those who are uninitiated, I think a lot of us have heard flatten the curve, but just redefine it. So there's a, a couple of some famous graphs going around, and I hesitate to say too much about this with an actual scientist in the room. Uh, but uh, if the rate of infection goes at a certain speed, the hospitals will become overwhelmed. Uh, if the rate of infection goes slightly slower, that will still be a, a massive public health crisis, but we won't have maybe the situations that we're seeing now in Italy, for example, where hospitals don't have room, where people are dying in hallways, where there, is, or there, aren't, there isn't enough equipment or, or people to take care of them. Uh, so slowing down the rate of spread is absolutely essential. So that's one kind of denial. The second is on an individual level, uh, where those of us who are fortunate enough to be healthy uh, and relatively young and who thus don't face a particularly high risk profile can say, well, I, I'm just 
one person. I can do this thing or I can do this trip or I can take this thing. I can take this step. And there's that denial as well, which is kind of an ethical denial, a denial of responsibility. Uh, and I think now as we are moving very, very quickly, each day is so different, uh, we're shifting into that space where that kind of denial is also very dangerous. There's a great BuzzFeed article. I'll put a link in the show notes about one of the dynamics here, and I think this is actually going to open up, our, this is a general observation about human nature that I think actually can lead us into a rich discussion about actionable tips for mitigating your anxiety. But the, this article made a point, I've seen it made elsewhere, but it was in particular in this article that I thought was made quite well, which is that for most, most of us, most of us, you know, actuarially speaking, are not at risk of serious illness here. And yet we're going to have to make serious changes to our life if we want to do the right thing. And so we're basically being asked to make huge changes in our lives for the benefit of other people, which is we're not particularly well wired for that on some level, especially in a country where, and again, uh, uh, I don't want to speak for Brazil, but in the United States, uh, the ethos is rugged individuality. We venerated selfishness. Yeah, we're certainly not wired that way. And we're all going to have to go there, right? At a personal level, um, I run a conference and we had to cancel it, right? And this argument that, well, did I want to make that decision for other people? And I felt like it was ethical and moral. I, I couldn't let people get to that denial, right? We have to figure out how to help others. And it's not biologically wired, that's for sure. And you wrote a beautiful thing about this. Thank you. I think, I think you know, I think we are at a, a certain inflection point uh, where maybe we're now past some of the politicization of the crisis, where there are folks across the political spectrum who are canceling their political rallies and who are, who are agreeing that these kinds of social distancing techniques are necessary. And it's, but we, it's also important not to just minimize this. This isn't, these, these things don't, it's not just a matter of selfishness. Like, I'm sorry that my concert that I wanted to go to got canceled and I wish I could go to this other thing. I mean, these are people's lives. The, the economic repercussions of these kinds of social distancing measures are terrifying to contemplate. You know, the markets, the, the stock markets aren't reacting to media spin. They're reacting to the realities, the economic realities of what this kind of uh, shutting down of the economy, partial shutting down of the economy is going to mean. And just now in New York, again, we're recording Thursday. This is the day that New York decided to shut down pretty much all of the broad, Broadway theaters. You know, those thousands and thousands of jobs that are affected. Uh, and so it's not just, oh, I really want to do this thing. It is actually the case that the economic costs of doing the right thing are severe. Okay, so this all leads us into where something that's going to be a little more sort of actionable, practical, and I think psychologically beneficial, uh, which is um, I think at a time like this, we justifiably think a lot about protecting ourselves and our loved ones, all of which you know, we should do. Mm -hmm. But um, a way that we can alleviate our own anxiety is to switch to thinking about the benefit of others. That's an ennobling, empowering state. So can I get you to sort of hold forth on that notion? Um, sure. So I think in some ways, the way I think about that um, is that it comes for me through compassion and caring for others and that it actually calms you down, right? We have research that shows that compassion for others allow your brain to calm down a little bit. And so one way to manage your anxiety is to lead with a place of compassion and lead a place that you can actually help others and feel good about it at the same time while bringing anxiety down. You want to weigh in on this, bud? Sure. I mean, it's one of these neat congruences where 
what's most effective. It's not always this way, but where it's, where you know what's most effective is also personally beneficial. Uh, and you know we see that kind of in the meditation business all the time. There's so much da- data that says you know if you want to be happy, help others. Um, and that may be counterintuitive, uh, certainly to some iterations. I would say vulgarizations of the American dream. Just like if you want to be happy, help yourself and amass as much wealth as possible and just do everything for yourself. Most people actually, when you sort of do good studies, double blind studies, turn out not to be that happy. Uh, so you don't have to be a spiritual person. I know where that Dan struggles with a lot uh, to uh, to appreciate that. You can be you know just purely kind of left brain looking at the data, uh, and that is absolutely the case. So it's not. And, and, you know, I think that's really true even on a micro level. I think one thing we would talk about, uh, we could just talk about it now, is, you know, what to do when you're washing your hands, right? 20 seconds is a long time to wash your hands. That's not what most people do. Um, what do you do? You could you just wash your hands. Sing happy birthday. Right. So sing happy birthday twice. That's out there in the – there's a sort of in the meditation world, there's the, the loving kindness uh, phrases. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be free. May all beings be happy. May we be happy. May we be healthy. May we be free. Um, if you do those a couple of times, not only are you spending the time, but you're also cultivating a little bit of compassion in that moment. Um, if saying phrases still feels too you know weird, just even bringing to mind someone in your life who is in a vulnerable population, whether they're elderly or whether they have a, a diabetes or a lung, a history, you know, a history of lung disease or an immune issue, um, and bringing them into mind and knowing that you're doing, you're taking this simple action. It's, you know, simple, but still not, we're not used to it, washing for 20 seconds, mm-hmm. taking the simple action for their benefit. And now you've cultivated a little bit of actual, authentic, loving kindness and compassion in your heart just by bringing someone to mind. Uh, who you care about. And it doesn't even have to be your mother-in-law, for example. It could actually be the person who you see at the street or the person who, you know, someone who you vaguely know, an acquaintance or something like that. I know just in my Facebook cohort, there are a number of people uh, with elevated risk profiles. And so there are a lot of people in my life who I can think of that I'm taking the simple action, not just for myself, um, but for these people. When you hear that as a scientist, does that sound irretrievably woo-woo and uh, uh, useless, or does it sound meaningful? Because <laughs> that's how it sounds to Dan. No, no, no. I, I do this. Uh, so I'm in the tank here, but I just want to – we actually have a scientist here. No. I mean, the data are solid here, right? I saw – I mean, we know that meditation helps. It helps your brain. And I loved your idea, actually. And the picture came into my mind is a mirror in a bathroom and having a loving, kind of meditation mm-hmm. so people could say it to themselves, right? A way to sort of like, because anchoring the breath sometimes is hard. Anchoring somebody else, you have to bring something to mind. And I was thinking, well, could we put a loving, kind of medication in every bathroom? And people could sit and actually get in touch with, you know, their kindness and loving for other people and themselves. Mm-hmm. I love the idea. Yeah, so it's... it's um you know, uh, I have struggled a lot with the sappiness of the, the traditional phrases in the in the Buddhist um, tradition of may, they're they're varied. The way I do it is may I, um, may we all be happy, may we all be safe, may we all um, be healthy, may we all live with ease. And if you do that once or tw- twice, it's probably close to twenty seconds, maybe three times. Um, what I find is even if I don't even generate much of a feeling, it's just a shift. It's a little bit like holding the ice cubes. You know what I mean? It's just it's the it's control alt delete. It's also a good use of those twenty seconds. Mm-hmm. Which I actually just you know hearing you say that one of the things that we're doing in the ten percent happier app is creating stu- creating material for healthcare providers, healthcare workers, uh, and people who are on the front lines. And I think it's important for people in very high-stress situations. We're all in in a high-stress moment. But people in acutely high-stress situations to also kind of keep our sights low 
in a sense. Like it's not reasonable to say I'm going to be calm. I'm going to uh, – this is going to disappear. The stress will disappear. And so one of the things that we've been looking at in terms of helping people on the front lines is can we get just a five-second reprieve, just like a little moment where the mind can rest and with no expectation that that's going to last beyond those five seconds because that's – even that, there's just too much expectation. So again, right, so here we are. You're washing your hands. You're doing a 20-second uh, loving-kindness phrase. Um, that could just be for those 10, 20 seconds you're doing it. That is enough of a benefit. Uh, for people who are really dealing with very acute stress. Uh, it doesn't have to even have a lasting impact. Uh, of course, it'd be great if it did. And that, that you know, it'd be great if, if we could sleep, we could all sleep better and, and, uh, and have days where, where we're not, you know, quite as obsessed. But just the 20 seconds is enough. I love the idea of the expectation, like making sure that we know that it's unreasonable to expect that a frontline person is not going to be anxious right? They're face-to-face with something that's very serious, but also giving them something to bring down in real time without putting the extra expectation that something miracle is going to happen, right? You're going to go back to your job, and that anxiety is protective at times. But I, I love sending that message. I think it's really important. Let's, let's go back to altruism and compassion as a, as a way. As a, um, I, I, what I love is, is there's, there's a self-interested case here for compassion um, as a you know, somebody who's on the selfishness spectrum, I find that appealing. You could call it enlightened self-interest. So let's just talk practically about things we can do now uh, that that might pop us out of our own story uh, so that we can um, sort of elevate our minds out of the morass of self-centered, anxious thoughts, uh, which again are adaptive and protective on some level, but taken too far, you're on the wrong side of the aforementioned uh, Yerkes-Dodson curve. Um, so, for example, um, helping out an elderly neighbor or thinking about um, uh, local businesses that are struggling in, in uh, maybe buying a gift certificate or if you've got uh, domestic workers that you don't, you know, that can't take the commute now, but you can continue to pay them. I just think there are there seem to be ways that we can start to think about other people that might lower our anxieties. Do, do it sounds, does it sound to you like I'm on the right uh, note here? Absolutely, Dan. Um, in fact, we've been thinking about this in our own home. It's sort of, you know, if you don't want your people that clean your house to come in, pay them anyhow, right? How can you tip you, somebody at a restaurant or give some money to a hom- homeless person? Really finding a way to support our economy um, through compassion. I love the idea of bringing food to those that can't leave their house. It's important. Uh, donating to local food banks. Yeah, Because absolutely. this is going to be a big issue. There in, in New York City, uh, when I, I think it's probably inevitable, we shut down the public schools. There are a lot of kids in there mm-hmm. who rely on the free meals. Mm-hmm. So food banks are going to be stressed. Um, that just seems like another thing we can do that, again, just pops us out of our own black hole of self self-obsession. And with the understanding that we are taking those actions for two reasons, right? Part of it is, of course, primarily to help the person who we're, who we're helping, but also knowing that it's also human to want to be able to make a little bit of a difference. Mm-hmm. And one of the most challenging aspects of a pandemic like this is that most of us cannot really make a difference. We can't mm-hmm. stop the spread of this except as one small part of a giant collective. Mm-hmm. So we do that. 
We do our we do our part. We do our part as part of this collective. But even that, we, there's an it's very understandable to wish we could do more. So instead of that kind of spinning off into uh, panic or you know desperately trying to figure out how can I plan this and do them and what how can I plan for three months from now and I don't know and all of those kinds of again very natural human things to do instead of going in that direction, kind of channeling some of that energy into work that's actually productive. So showing up for people and actually helping people, showing up, again, you know, for our families, trying to remain, to, to remain as resilient as we can. Um, just with that understanding that, okay, this is partly for me as well as for the people who I'm helping, uh, and that's good. This means I'm channeling some of that excess energy into a place where it could actually do some good. That helps with the brain, too, right? Because there's so much uncertainty right now. And if you can actually leverage on the place that you have some certainty, mm. helping others help you and help them, mm. right? And mm -hmm. that cools off the brain a lot because we don't have and are going to have a lot of certainty around this virus. Mm. So being able to do something like this has also psychological help. Because uncertainty, and we're seeing this, has really pernicious knock-on effects. This is what leads to the kind of xenophobic attacks we've seen on Asian people. This is what leads to panic buying in a way that denies frontline health workers of face masks. Um, it also makes us, the panic that can result from uncertainty can make us more susceptible to terrible information on social media, misinformation. I think you were saying, I think you were telling some of my colleagues that we're in a bit of an infodemic. <laughs> We sort of are. Um, and you're absolutely right. See, uncertainty, the brain doesn't like dissonance. The brain wants certainty, right? When the brain stuck, starts to spin. And so right now we have all this uncertainty, and it's maintaining a lot of this anxiety right? because people are trying to figure out what to do. They're trying to get some concrete answers. And the thing is, we don't have a lot of it, and we're not going to have it for a while, right? And so when, I, when you're talking about sort of being with your emotions, I think about riding a wave right now, right? We're all surfing a big Hawaiian wave, and we are not surfers. And so it feels emotionally challenging, and it's hard to stay on top of the surfboard. But coming off of it, it's not an option, right? And so I think we have to figure out how to give techniques to tame our brain, and I like this idea of helping others as a way to concretely bring down uncertainty by focus on certainty. If I do this, I'm helping this person, and I'm helping society at large. So let's talk about, this. You've, you've teed up uh, Jay quite well here, because the, the surfing is a metaphor we use a lot in meditation. Mm -hmm. um, granted, Thanks for that. I, I use it all the time <laughs> she, with my patients. She, did it. she did it deliberately. She knew. <laughs> She's all about the segue. Um, so a lot of people listening to the show know the basic blocking and tackling of meditation. I suspect, however, given the broad interest in this subject, we may have some first-time listeners. So can you just walk through on a very basic level what is meditation and how can it be useful in terms of riding difficult emotions like uncertainty and fear and anger, et cetera? So the kind of meditation that we're focused on, mindfulness meditation, I, th I like to think of as kind of a, a two-step process. Um, the first is to kind of calm down and center the mind enough to do the second step, which is to just see what's going on and to just coexist with, with what's going on. So you can't coexist or see what's going on if uh, the mind is just filled with anxiety and is you're, you're going nuts. Uh, so the first step, and for some people this is the only step, and I think in this kind of a crisis it's okay if this is the only step, but the first part is to just use some techniques to kind of just center the mind and quiet the mind, sometimes grounding in the body. So for example, probably, probably most listeners know that one way people meditate a lot is to notice the sensations of the breath. So just in doing that, 
Um, there's a bit of a there's a feedback loop. There's some calming into the mind that happens. Just by doing that, you're also not still on the hamster wheel of more anxiety, anxious thoughts. So just by not doing that, you're calming down the mind and centering the mind. Um, I think I'll repeat that can be enough. <laughs> uh, but in a sense, that's also just the first step, because uh, the second step is to then, if the mind is a little bit more calm, to see what's up. Oh, a lot of anxiety is present. Oh, a lot of worry or fear or concern. Sometimes what can be up actually might even be positive in a sense, even in this kind of a crisis. Oh, I'm really worried about this person who I love. So there's actually something very sweet in that, right? It's painful because there's worry, but there's also something really beautiful that you can kind of see when you see a little bit more clearly. And um, one of our friends and teachers, Sharon Salzberg, likes to say that the essence of this kind of meditation is just what's going on and can I be with it? So we're not trying to say it's okay. We're not trying to make the bad feelings go away. We're not trying to, like, tunnel in and make the bad feelings worse. We're just seeing what's going on and can I be with it. And that requires that kind of clear mind. So we calm down the mind, and then we just kind of see, okay, here I am. I'm sitting. I'm breathing. What's up? Oh, a lot of pain is up. You might even notice – here's just another example of what you might notice – you might notice some of the physical manifestations, which you could talk more about, of anxiety. Oh, my posture is really tense. My muscles are really tense. My jaw is really tense. Like I'm adding a lot of extra layers of tension onto what's there. So another of our favorite teachers, Sylvia Borstein, says that um, in life, uh, pain is mandatory, but suffering is optional. Right. So what's mandatory right now is we're all going to be feeling fear and anxiety. Like that's not that's part of this. If I notice, though, that I've been clenching my jaw like crazy for the last three hours and I can relax out of that, that can actually really help. So just seeing what's there, just what's true for us, sometimes does allow us to kind of, oh, okay, I don't need to do that. I don't need to add this extra layer. Or I mentioned before, I see anxiety and also judging myself for the anxiety. I don't need to add that extra layer. Like this situation is difficult enough. So if I can look inside, calm the mind, and then look inside enough to see how I'm making it worse, well, you know, maybe I won't make it worse. You guys ever seen the movie E.T.? <laughs> I saw it recently again with my son. And, and E.T., the ter- extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial, his emotions manifest as a light in his chest. Mm-hmm. And I feel that myself. I don't have a light in my chest. But I notice that it, for me, when I'm anxious, it's just like a big humming sensation in my chest. And gen- for most of my life, my coping mechanism was to do anything I could to get rid of that feeling. But here in meditation, you're doing this counterintuitive, and I would argue, baller move of leaning into it and seeing that it's not going to kill you. And you can ride it, hence the surfing analogy. And after a while, make it worse, make it better, but it's not going to last forever. And you can, uh, you can lean into it, feel it, and then make calmer, saner decisions as a consequence. And it is contrary to, you know, however many billion years of evolution, right, Mm -hmm. to just allow the unpleasant thing to just be there, right? Even, you know, small animals, when they have something unpleasant, they want to push it away. And when they have something pleasant, they want more of it. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we're messed up, like, you know, we're just bad humans for wanting the pleasant and not wanting the unpleasant. Like that is Mm -hmm. animal nature. So it's uh, it's not just weird to to you know your past you know your past life. It's also weird to like all of the beings on the planet uh, to just say, okay, here's something unpleasant. I'd rather this not be here. I get that, but can I just allow it to be here? And I can see clearly, and I can I can calm the mind a little bit by not pushing it away and you know, creating that resistance to the unpleasant thing. That's actually where so much of the stress comes from. Like there's the stress itself, 
but then the resistance to the stress just doubles it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now if I can just say, all right, yeah, this sucks. And it sucks in a profound way, in ways that re- people are really hurting. And I'm affected in, in various ways. Um, okay, okay. At least then that extra resistance doesn't have to be there. Yeah, I talk about being comfortably uncomfortable, hmm. right? Staying with it. And, and the thing is, pushing that chest pain, it's going to make it worse, right? And in trying to sit with it, sometimes it's so hard as well. And so there's a sweet spot of sort of allowing to exist. And biologically, we do know it comes down. Right, you can't be at that fight or flight forever. Mm. Like you just can't to shut down. Mm-hmm. Right, but if you ride that wave, and that's why I like that that analogy, and I know it's from meditation of riding the wave, because if you ride oh, it, I thought you were talking about my ET analogy. No, nah, I'm, the ba- like. I'm back in the meditation okay. world. But no, I, neither of us really like. I that. know, I can tell. <laughs> I, I get to the light on your chest. Though, I, I saw the light going on, and I was like, "Wait, well, I got it." Um, <laughs> your but, kids are too young, but you'll be what you have a Jay has a two and a half, you have a three and a half year old. You'll be watching ET soon. Anyway, carry on. We'll get there. <laughs> no, but I, I do like this idea, and I think it's hard for people to go there because that fear that if you allow it to exist it's going to be so much it's going to consume you right and, and a lot of, of people I work with saying this like well you want me to experience the anxiety I'm here for you to take that anxiety away and, and I say to people listen if I take your anxiety away you're in trouble Mm. Right? It's like our pain receptors. If you touch a stove, you need to tell us it's hot. Mm-hmm. Right? Anxiety signals something important. And if you allow it to exist, it actually goes away. Mm-hmm. And and exactly. Yeah, uh, from a sort of meditation-y you know, perspective for the last 2,500 years, that's exactly the, the sort of teaching. And also, some people are hurting so much that just as you said before, I want to pick up on what you said, sometimes it is just too much to sit with it. And you know, meditation teachers can just be like, oh, well, just sit with it. Sometimes, no. I would say for most folks who are relatively safe right now as a public health, as a matter of health, uh, that's probably true. Like if I can just sit with the anxiety and just be with it and acknowledge it, that can be so, so, so helpful. But if it's someone working in healthcare on the front lines, it may be too much to sit with. It may actually be better to do less and to just say, actually, this is too much. Uh, I'm just going to give myself an island of calm. Uh, for these five minutes of listening to this recorded meditation on an app or something. And I'm just going to just do that without any agenda of like doing any work of like seeing stuff. So again, it's, it's, everyone's different. Uh, the main advice is calm and then insight, look in and see what's there. Mm-hmm. But for some folks, because of our different situations, you know, it may not be. Mm-hmm. Just to put a fine point on that, Jay, and I know you, you want to la- lean in, um, Luana, but um, so in meditation, as you were describing before, there are these two for basic beginner mindfulness meditation. There are these two moves. The first is to anchor into the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Or to some people don't like being with the breath. We might pick another so-called objective meditation, like the feeling of your whole body sitting in the chair. You tune into this one sensation, this one thing, this one object, uh, the, uh, the feeling of your breath coming in or going out and going out, or the feeling of your body sitting in the chair or some other object, and uh, every time you get distracted, which you will a million times, you start again. And that in and of itself is the calming, the settling the mind, the, the a little bit of Calgon take me away, even though it can be enervating to notice how often you're thinking about like, whoa, why don't those guys like my ET analogy or or whatever. Um, and then uh, the next move is once you've got some level, you're not going to be in like sort of bulletproof, um, thought-free zone, but you'll have some level of calm and centeredness. Then you can start investigating what difficult emotions are there. But the point you were just making was for some people who are really, you know, at tilt here, maybe just do part one. 
That's right. And, you know, we know this in particular, people with trauma histories, uh, that just saying, oh, just sit with this traumatic memory that's coming up is actually really profoundly unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Likewise here when someone's under intense anxiety. So, yeah. And just for, again, for folks for whom this is new, that second step of inquiry is very simple. It's just like, what's going on and can I be with it? Like, Mm -hmm. what's happening right now? What am I feeling? What am I feeling in the mind? What am I feeling in the body? Just checking in. There's no, like, agenda of, like, oh, I should be feeling – right, uh, But there's that. one thing that's not on the agenda, which is you're not, like, actively, affirmatively indulging in all of the anxious thoughts. You might notice them come and you might get carried away a little bit, but the goal is to then notice, okay, I'm carried away. Let me go back to either the breath or investigating what are the physical – bodily sensation level manifestations of this emotion. That's right. And if, you're, if your mind is in the future or thinking about the future or the past, that's not where, you, where, this, where the meditation wants to lead you. Um, so that's a good way to check in. Like, oh, I'm thinking about my stock portfolio or I'm thinking about, you know, how I'm going to – what are my, the food in the pantry or something like that. So that, those are all very natural thoughts people might be having depending on where they are. Uh, and those are thoughts about the future actually, right? So what's happening now? Oh, what's happening now is anxiety. Uh, what's happening right now is concern. Uh, what's happening right now is tension in my body, something like that. So you can easily, uh, easily, simple but not easy, but you can, you can kind of bring yourself back just with that question. Okay, what's happening? What's happening now? I, I do think that idea that it's not for everybody right now. I, you brought trauma, and I actually was thinking about, I treat a lot of trauma patients, and this idea of staying with that without some support is really unbearable, mm-hmm. right? And definitely not something that you want to be encouraging. So I, I like if we're talking about just the public health, you know, how to help people right now, I like the first step right now because most people can access. It goes back to sort of, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction, John Kabat-Zinn's work, which is really helpful. And, and in my mind, what I've done with patients, say, listen, you may not be able to even pay attention to your breath, but can you brush your teeth mindfully? Can you take a walk around the block and describe the trees? Can you anchor on sensation? Is there something that you actually can do? And I think nowadays with all of the meditations and the apps and you guys guiding it, we certainly can do that, but sometimes it has to be something physical that somebody can do in a mindful way to allow them to be in the present moment because I think that's what we're talking about, right? Can we be here now, not in the future worrying, not in the past, but really anchoring on the present time, acknowledging that challenging times. And it is, look, I mean, these aren't even silver linings. I sort of don't like this whole talk about like the silver lining of a horrible pandemic public health crisis, but one somewhat one invitation that this presents is actually for more of those physical opportunities for mindfulness, whether we were talking about washing the hands. One other option is just to feel yourself washing the hands, right? Um, we were talking before we went on air that I'm, I'm kind of teaching this mindfulness of not touching your face, which is excruciating. Uh, my nose was itching earlier in this podcast, and I didn't do it. Uh, it could actually be a really, you know, it's a diversion, which we all need. It's a kind of fun mindfulness practice. Can you, give, can you go through the basics of that? So it's just you just know it. So most of the time when we're touching our face, which just, again, people probably know this by now, is, you know, this is actually one way that the virus gets into you because the virus has to get to your lungs somehow. So if it's on your body, you're actually, you're not going to get, a, it's not going to be a problem, but it's when it gets inside, gets into the lungs. So if you touch your, your eyes, your mucous membranes, your nose, your face, your mouth mostly, um, that's how it gets in. So don't touch your face. Nice advice to get from public health professionals because it's very hard to not do that. Uh, so from a mindfulness perspective, probably people listening right now are scratching their face just because I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. I've made things worse. <laughs> uh, one, you can take it on. And it, this is sort of a lighthearted. This isn't like the core thing. But if you are looking for ways to be mindful in a body-based way, just notice like there's an itch. Don't scratch it. Just see what happens. It's really interesting to just like 
the world is not going to end if you don't scratch that itch or if you have that like nervous tick where you like want to touch your face or something in some way as I did for the, f- the third time today I mentioned right before the podcast we were just about to start I, I had face touching number three <laughs> I blew but it that's amazing because most of us ha- are right. on face Usually touching like 3,000 3, yeah, yeah no for me that's like unbelievable because I'm a compulsive like all the time plus people listening don't know but I have a beard and so like there's like all that so like there's a lot of opportunities um, it's a really fun and I think it's okay to have a certain kind of fun during this very difficult time fun way of doing mindfulness to just be like wow I really want to scratch my nose right now I really want to and I'm just not going to do it it's but I think that my the point the reason I bring that up uh, is to is to sort of amplify what what Luana just said which is that for folks meditation has a there's an image of what meditation is which is like somebody sitting still cross-legged and like close their eyes and they're like perfectly following their breath I mean, that's great for some people, but for most people, mindfulness doesn't have to be formal meditation. It can be in any action, brushing your teeth, washing your hands, not scratching scratching your face, walking back and forth, sitting in a car ride. I think, Dan, you said you do meditation when you're you're in the back of a taxi cab. So the point is to make these tools as accessible as possible when people are hurting. But what's the benefit? I understand the control-alt-delete benefit of uh, repeating – uh, loving kindness phrases while you're washing your hand because it just jars the the, the brain out of its rut. Um, what's the benefit of watching itches arise in your face and not taking the bait and acting on it? So there are two benefits, the negative and the positive. The negative is what you're not doing when that's happening, and what you're not doing is obsessing over your anxiety-creating thoughts. So just by – and that's not about just meditation. That could be true if you read a book or watch TV or anything. Just give yourself a break from obsessing over your, your, your endless anxiety-making thoughts. So when I'm paying attention to my face or my breath or whatever, I'm not doing something else, which is making more anxiety. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the negative benefit. Uh, and the positive benefit, it goes, it's this idea of metacognition. Just be aware of your mind. So just as I'm aware of anxiety being present, I can also be aware of physical sensations like, oh, my gosh, I really want to rub my eye right now. And just being with that, that's a very trivial – now it's not so trivial. But usually that's a very trivial, simple kind of negative, unpleasant sensation, an itch, Mm -hmm. right? You're not going to die from an itch. Um, so it's a, fu- it's a place to practice. Sometimes meditators use the word practice a lot, like we practice meditation. This is a way to practice for sometimes when it's more serious. So right now we're living in a pandemic. The rubber is hitting the road. Now is the serious time. So by practicing meditation and mindfulness in these very simple ways, like not scratching an itch or something like that, now when there's something really unpleasant, existential worry about, you know, whether I have enough money to send my daughter to college because of the, you know, the changes in our, you know, this recession that we're hitting into. Now I have practiced being with unpleasant feelings. And so when that big, serious, unpleasant feeling comes up, or unpleasant is too, you know, too simple a word. What if, God forbid, what if a relative gets, gets sick who's vulnerable? Now I've practiced being with what's so difficult in simple ways, in little ways, being with knee pain when I'm meditating or, or any other physical thing. I've practiced that. I've built up that muscle in the gym. And so now when it really is called on, which is now, now it's actually there and, and it's been developed. So those are the two benefits, the negative, giving yourself a break, and the positive, actually building those muscles of metacognition so that you can compassionately, mindfully be with these difficult emotions and be resilient and show up for other people. But by negative benefit, you don't mean like it's a bad benefit. No, no, no. Negative meaning it's the absence of doing something unhelpful and the presence of doing something helpful. 
And you rewiring your brain, right? When we look at meditation research and we look, we're really actually changing your brain. If you can do that, then you're going to be more resilient in the moment when you really need it. Right. right, and I, I want to scratch my nose. By the way, really want to scratch. You want to scratch it right yeah. now? I'm, yeah. I'm practicing. Yeah, the guys in the room here. All I'm looking at the corner of my eye. Everybody's like, <laughs> yeah, right. everybody wants some of that. Right. <laughs> you know, look, it, it, it's a fun. It's a. It, we're, we are allowed to still have fun. I mean, we really we need to find little breaks, and this is kind of a fun way to do it. Just but, watch how like crazy it is, like the, that we're in these bodies. We just cannot stop from doing this. Yeah. Speaking of fun, he brought something else up that I actually wanted to run by you, which is what we've been talking about some sort of high minded uh, ways to manage our anxiety. But what about uh, watching TV? I recommend Disney Plus. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, that was. Anyway, um, uh, what about uh, books? What about, uh, you know, Just my don't son? watch Dan's incredibly stress-inducing documentary about deforestation in the Amazon yes. right now. It, available no, uh, on YouTube. Come on. Or, or E.T. But what about these sort of lighter cultural things that we can do or, you know, having a dance party with your kid, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I think we all need to disconnect a little bit, right, and do something fun. I agree with you, Jay. Like being able to have some fun and disconnect uh, gives your brain a break. And sometimes it is a dance party is watching a movie, is reading a book, and sometimes you're so activated that's reading a book that you've read it before that we really like that you know it's going to bring some memories. You know, doing something that allows your brain to just have a break because we are on all the time right now and for a good reason in many ways. You, uh, there's something I wanted to loop back to you on. Uh, we were talking before about f- how you want to be a little careful if you're meditating with trauma, and I know you treat a lot of people with trauma. But what about in moments like this for people who I would say seem more psychologically vulnerable, like uh, who have anxiety disorders or o- uh, like OCD uh, or uh, PTSD? What, what's your recommendation for folks in that situation for whom the pandemic would be especially activating, perhaps? So I think at that point, we really need to think about seeking professional help, right? And if you can't, then trying to get some good self-help books allow you to sort of th- change your thoughts, change your behavior, um, because at that moment in time, your brain's really full in fight or flight. If you're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, you are hyper-aroused, you're looking around, you're scared, and it's because of a memory that now it's been amplified by this pandemic, right? So my recommendation at that point is, is to seek some support, ideally some professional support, and I, I land towards cognitive behavior therapy. It's my bias, of course, because it's an evidence-based kind of therapy. So we know it works, and it works for most people. Um, it doesn't matter where in the world. Can you say more about how exactly, what, what, what we do in CBT? Absolutely. So CBT basically is the idea that our thoughts affect what we're feeling, and what we're feeling affects what we do, and this gets us spinning, right? So cognitive behavior therapy in our lab at Mass General, we talk about a tab, thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, okay? And so the idea is, I had a moment ago that you are talking about something, Jay, and my brain went somewhere else, and I went, oh, I lost this. And then immediately, I had this anxiety going on, and I started to scan a little bit to make sure I was anchoring what you guys were talking about, right? Who was more boring, Jay or me? Who? No, it was equal. <laughs> no, I think I was trying not to scratch. I think really what it was that. And it captivated a thought in my brain. Uh, but really, the idea is this. This gets us spinning. And sometimes we don't notice. That's why I like meditation. It allows us to notice what's happening in your brain. In CBT, what we do is active skills, right? For our thinking, we talk about restructure our thinking, more balanced thoughts, right? So if you're going to look at the news, get data that's reliable to help you fight some distorted thoughts. 
right? So what do we know? Am I in that kind of population that's a danger? Yes or no? And if you're not, what can you do to keep yourself safe and your loved one safe, right? So in thoughts, we change our thinking. In emotions, we talk a lot about riding the wave, tolerating discomfort, being really comfortably uncomfortable, and knowing that's going to go away. And then in behavior, we really want to Act towards things that are good for you. So healthy behaviors, eating, exercise, and sleeping, right? Being able to approach things that make you feel good, um, such as going for a walk, right? Any kind of healthy behavior, but also being careful of avoidance. In CBT, we talk a lot about people getting stuck because they start to get anxious and they avoid it. In this moment in time, it goes back to this sort of idea of denial. Avoiding the news completely is probably not a good idea. Things are changing so fast. So you want to approach your fears, be able to tolerate them, and stay with them long enough because they come down. Seems like meditation and mindfulness would turbocharge everything you just described. Absolutely. I, I think in many ways it's at the middle of it, right? If you can create a fertile meditation place, then definitely those skills, they'll grow faster. Before I let you guys go, and speaking of skills on meditation, we talked about hand-washing using the phrases. Uh, there's another way to do it, which is just sort of a pure mindfulness, bringing self-awareness to the feelings, uh, physical sensations of washing the hands. Can you just run through that? Because I think it's a really good practical tip. Sure. I, I think that's – I should also say I think it's – the easier one is to either use the phrases or to bring somebody to mind um, just for beginners. Uh, but, yeah, I mean that kind of – so – 2,500 years ago, uh, a prince in North India uh, became known as the Buddha said when, you know, the way to get enlightened, the way to get liberated, meaning not to suffer from so much stress and pain all the time, uh, is when you're walking, you know that you're walking. When you're breathing in, you know you're breathing in. When you're breathing out, you know you're breathing out. It's this very simple thing of just knowing what's happening. Um, because if you do it in those very simple actions of the body, you also do it in the complicated actions of the heart. When you're feeling sad, you know, you're feeling sad. When you're feeling angry, oh, I'm feeling really angry right now. Maybe now's not the time to send the email or, you know, lash out or say this comment that I really want to say to this person in my life. So, you know, it's very simple, deceptively simple, just knowing what's happening. So that then in the last, you know, especially the last 150, 200 years has been applied to all different kinds of actions. As far as I know, the Buddha never said when you're washing your hands, no, you're washing your hands. But it's that same principle, just what's happening right now. Oh, I'm washing my hands. So I'm feeling the sensation of the soap and the water, the water warm or cold. Um, mind gets distracted. Okay, whatever. Mind got distracted. Here's, here's what's happening right now on this very tactile level. And just like we, I said before, there's, there's the sort of the, the negative, meaning the thing that you're not doing and the thing that you are doing. The thing that you're not doing is obsessing and having feeding all sorts of different thoughts. Uh, and what you are doing is metacognition. What's happening right now? Oh, it feels like this. The water feels like that. Uh, and it's a very deceptively simple thing, you know, and that is kind of the core mindfulness practice is to just be aware of what's happening one thing at a time, maybe, and just noticing here's what the water feels like, here's what the soap feels like. Um, because again, you, that's very simple. Uh, but then when it gets very difficult, here's what grief feels like, or here's what loneliness feels like, or fear of loneliness. And you know, we're at the beginning of this thing. You know, people might be listening to this two or three weeks on when they've been locked in an apartment with their kids or something for two weeks. You know, so it's that's you know, the rubber's really hitting the road. Like, here is when I just feel like I'm going to explode and I'm managing anger and my kids' anger and I'm restless and I'm bored. And these are things, some of the things that I'm fearing about the next month. Um, so, by practicing with the simple stuff, uh, we build those skills and those mental muscles to deal with the hard stuff. We all have little kids. We all maybe 
locked in inside with these little kids pretty soon. Um, what are your thoughts about a how we handle this and b how we talk to our kids? Well, we have very little kids, right? So I think one thing to talk to your kids is that it's to assure them that you're doing everything and you're keeping them safe, right? The kids are actually scanning. We talked about this in the beginning that your kids are paying attention, right? And so making sure that you can keep yourself calm so that your kid's anxiety is not going up because if you're anxious, your kid is very likely to be anxious. So I think the first thing about your kids is manage your own anxiety, mm. right? And the second thing is to engage with them on things that have nothing to do with the news. So if you're going to sit in front of the news and watch it, you don't have your kids right next to you, right? Because that's just going to increase their anxiety and their brain's not fully developed. They're not ready for this. They don't have the ability to discern. And so watch ET with your kids, but watch the news separate from your kids. And make sure that they know you you can reassure them, right? That, that you're doing what you can. Any thoughts on coping skills for, you know, as you guys have toddlers, I have a five-year-old. Kids are trying and their job is to test your patients, and they're pretty good at their jobs. Um, what? Any thoughts on, you know, in a situation several weeks from now where some of us may be sort of locked down with these uh, critters, how to manage your own anxiety, anger, fear, et cetera, et cetera? So I go back to something that I think both of you probably do. I go back to my breath, and I go down, and I look at my son in the eye, and I breathe, and I just look at him and I said, I love you. And I get it's really challenging. And then I anchor on my love for him. And that's what I do. I just sort of ride that wave. I know it's going to go away. I think for really little kids, you can distract them a little bit, right? But I think it's sort of just being with them and, and riding that wave with them. That's what I do. I scream at my kid, which is, I think, very effective. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> um, no, I think that's, I think that's great. Uh, I think that's great advice. Um, and I find that one of the, me- after a decade of meditation, which isn't a ton, but it's not nothing, um, just patience is one of the skills that I find emerging. It's not 100% there all the time, but mm-hmm. I can feel when he's triggering me and I can some percentage of the time let it arise and pass without doing something that I feel like I've landed him in the therapist's office for 40 years. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to say anything complimentary toward you, Dan, but uh, but <laughs> one of the, you know, really one of the, the best contributions that you've made, and I know you've heard me say this before, but maybe listeners haven't, is literally just this, the name of this podcast, like the, the, the idea of 10% happier, that I think we sometimes set up very high standards for ourselves, and that, you know, meditation means I have to be this kind of person, and I'm that kind of person, and I have to, you know, have incense on all the time, and I'm always calm. And, you know, maybe for the, for the duration of this pandemic, even 2% happier would be a, cheap, would be a good bar, uh, 2% less anxious. So that means you're still 98% anxious, right? Um, and I think that I, I really do, I mean this sincerely, I mean, I think that just that way of thinking about this kind of work, whether, whether it's uh, in a psychotherapeutic modality, whether it's, whether, you know, whether it's CBT, whether it's meditation, mindfulness, knowing that it's not about success like it's not like i've done it i'm 100 percent or and that's thus it's not about failure like i'm still feeling all this anxiety am i a failure it's like okay well what if we could just get two percent more more able to show up for our kids for our parents for for the people in our lives um that for me feels really worth the price of admission i appreciate that and we can now return to our regular scheduled programming of Jay verbally abusing Dan. Uh, <laughs> no, I really do appreciate that, Jay. Um, so on uh, just before we cl- – as we close here, I, you, you said something, Jay, before about having a bit of an allergy to getting a little 
too Pollyanna and looking for silver linings in this moment. But but you you did write a very nice um, uh, newsletter for Ten Percent Happier when you talked about where you talked about the fact that in a moment like this we can actually connect to and this is a little lofty, but I think actually appropriate an innate wisdom. So can you hold forth on that, and then we'll let Luana take us home. Sure. I mean, I think there are, I guess that's why I like that language a little more of like invitations. I feel like because we're at this early stage and I just, I just, I just am reluctant around that language of silver linings. Like, well, let's look for the bright side of this horrible thing. But there are, there are a lot of positive possibilities that are here. You know, one is to reconnect with what matters to us the most, you know, which I think has to do with love and justice and caring for people in our lives and showing up for others and, and, and growing wise uh, in the process. Um, you know, it's a scary time and that, that brings us closer if we're fortunate enough to have people in our lives uh, that can bring us closer to them. So that, you know, that's one. I think the, the wisdom that can emerge has to do really with putting what matters in perspective. Uh, that life is profoundly uncertain. You know, most of us carry around what in sort of my lefty woke circles we call kind of ableist privilege. Like if we're like in a body that our our society has said, well, that body's healthy, you know, that's a, you're not disabled. We take for granted like how how that operates in our in all of our lives. Well, now we're all like a little bit, I want to say disabled, but now we're all like a little bit threatened in a certain way. And the vulnerability of being human is very apparent to us, uh, some people much more than others. Um, and so, you know, this is like, for me, a deep, difficult learning, like a lot of, you know, the loss of my parents or other, you know, losses in my life, um, of the reality of life, that suffering is just part of life, that pain is part of life, doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, uh, that things come and things, things don't last forever, uh, that they really change a lot. Um, and that's not necessarily to be gloom and doom about it, but that's to then be able to affirm what's beautiful about life. So I, I don't, I wouldn't wish a pandemic on anyone. <laughs> um, and yet there are some opportunities for us to grow wise in the process and hopefully maybe a little closer to one another, maybe a little respect, more respectful towards science, which would be great in our society. Uh, and, and a little bit more, a, a little bit more gentle. Uh, and aware that not everybody is so fortunate all the time. Final thoughts from you? No, I, I love this idea of anchoring the things that matter, right? And, and we have an opportunity, a real opportunity. I agree with you. We might be locked at home with our kids, but most of us have talked about wanting to spend more time with our kids. And yes, we don't want to do it through a pandemic, but the reality is can we actually use that moment? Can we go towards it and really do the best with it? And bring our society out in a way that is more gentle. I love that idea. You guys have done a public service here. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. And I will put links to your respective websites in the show notes. Um, as we close, just a few items of business. One is that Jay is has many, wears many hats at 10% Happier, but one of them is uh, he records guided meditations uh, in his voice, and he also rec- records um, little mini podcasts uh, from all sorts of experts that go in the talks segment of our app. And we're going to be posting a lot of the um, coronavirus-related content for free. 
both on the app, the 10% Happier app, and we'll be, I think, posting some of it in this podcast feed. Uh, and also, again, if you want to get the app for free, if you're a healthcare worker, uh, email us at care at 10%.com. Let us know what you do. Uh, uh, tell us about your friends, and we'll hook you up with six months for free. Uh, finally, if you're really interested, which I think most of us are, in this pandemic, um, ABC News is doing a similar podcast called COVID-19, What You Need to Know. COVID-19, what you need to know. Just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. It's Monday through Friday. Our chief medical correspondent, fantastic human being, meditator, Dr. Jen Ashton, will answer questions submitted on social media. Uh, Again, the name of that podcast is COVID-19, what you need to know. Uh, We'll be back Wednesday with another sort of, I think the way we're going to do this going forward is on Wednesdays, we'll do our regular episodes on what we'd already been planning to talk about this Wednesday, we're going to talk to some teenagers who are really into meditation and actually go on very interesting meditation retreats. And then we're going to also try to regularly populate this feed with uh, coronavirus-related material as well. Thank you again to the guests. Thank you for listening, guys. We'll see you soon. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.